welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, we are beginning a new series that our family pastor, J.C. Thompson, has been putting together on Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Visit brookwoodchurch.org or our Brookwood app if you'd like to find more resources on this message or if you would just like to hear our past messages. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. I'm your peace. morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, Last week, if you were here, uh, Perry talked about what was going to happen at the end of the world, and my head was spinning. And so I'm bringing it back to Jesus today, (laughs) something that I feel like is good to talk about after uh, basically feeling like, Perry, I I don't know what half of what you said, but I love you so much. Uh, And so I'm I'm thankful to be here and start a new series today. Our series is going to be titled Follow. Uh, And we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And I'm not as smart as Perry, so I'm going to cover one verse today. Uh, And it's probably going to take me more than enough time to cover that verse. So uh, just bear with me. But why why this series? Um, why, Why talk about this section of Scripture? Well, this section of Scripture... Uh, it's kind of a, a cool piece. It's, it's a wonderful thing for us to look at because uh, it is the gospel in five verses. Uh, and as uh, people who are being equipped to lead others to Christ, point others to the gospel, we need to know these things. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what he accomplished for us in his life, his death, his resurrection. And so one is that. Uh, this section of scripture is sometimes called the hymn of Christ or the Messiah poem. It's actually a poem. Uh, It's written in that way. Uh, There's some debate over, did Paul actually write this particular piece, or was this actually a song that was being sung as the early church was gathering? Uh, And maybe he took that and placed it into the passage that we have, this letter that he wrote in Philippians. And and we don't know. I think you can kind of go either way uh, in that. To to me, the, the crucial part, the pivotal part is the, the words that this section of Scripture has, it's powerful. And it helps us answer this question, this question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. He asked his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And, you know, he, they answered several titles, several things, several people. And then he says, in, in verse 15, he says this, who do you say that I am? And you know that Peter answered that question. He said, you're the Messiah you're the son of the living God. You are the Christ, is what Peter answered. And for us, we are asked that same question. One day when we come face to face with God, the question will be, who do we say that Jesus is? And we must answer that question. And not only that, but if we're a follower of Christ, we also must help other people understand the answer to that question. It's our job to point them towards Jesus. And so this passage of Scripture will help us adequately answer the question, who is Jesus? But not only that, it's also in the book of Philippians. It's in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And one of the main themes of that verse is the idea of humility and service. In fact, the the passage kind of starts with this intro in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. It says this, it says, you must have the same attitude 
that Christ Jesus had, which first of all, that should give us a little bit of terror um, because Jesus Christ had a wonderful attitude, an incredible attitude, one that was constantly looking to others to serve them. We must adopt that. So this passage of scripture is twofold. It's one to give us who is Christ, who is Jesus, and to give us a picture of the gospel, but then also this gives us an example to follow. It answers the question, how then shall we live? What should we do with the information that we have? What should we do knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? What do we do? And so I hope that you'll uh, stick with us. And my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, would be to memorize these verses. You have about 14 days total in this series over the three weeks that we're having it. And so uh, it's five verses. And if you can commit these to memory, I really believe it will be a tool for you to help you as you're trying to help people know God. Uh, And so I would just challenge you to do that. Now, we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. In other words, he, God, came to earth as a human being, and he was born through a virgin. And we call that the incarnation of Christ, God becoming human on our behalf. It's called the incarnation. Well, that incarnation, that idea, that thing that happened in history, that idea and process of incarnation reveals several things to us. And the first thing that the incarnation of Christ Jesus reveals to us is the person of God, the person of God. If you would, if you got your Bibles, if you got your app, if you've got your friend who's memorized all of Philippians, turn to them and say, I need you to quote for me Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, okay? And here's what it says, and I'm just going to get through one phrase, and then we're going to have to take some time to explain it, okay? It's just, it just says this, though he was God, though he was God, the ESV says, though he was in the form of God, which some people stop and go, form of God, what, is that, what does that mean, okay? So, though he was God, the NLT kind of sums up what that actually means is, is this, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. Now, this is a crucial thing to understand. Why? Because if we claim that Jesus is God, we claim something very big and very serious. We claim that someone that walked on planet Earth, that lived, is actually God. That should make you think very critically about the life of Jesus. It should cause you to ask some immense questions. And we believe that Jesus answers those questions. In fact, John starts off his book, his his gospel, with this idea in John chapter 1, verse 1. He just says this. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word there is Jesus. Jesus has always existed. You know, I remember being a kid, and I was probably first, second grade, and I asked my mom this question. I said, where did God come from? And my mom, being a wonderful mother and a Christ follower, she said, I don't know. I will get back to you. (laughs) And can I just encourage you parents? That's a wonderful answer to that question. A wonderful answer. As long as you commit to finding the answer to that question. And I remember several years later, my mom came back to me and she said, hey, I finally have the answer to your question. And I'm going, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? She said, years ago, you asked me, where did God come from? She said, I found the answer. 
God didn't come from anywhere. And I said, what, what? You know, I'm older now, right? I'm not a first grader, second grader, but I'm going, what? She said, no, he's always been. God doesn't have a moment of existence. He's always been, and Jesus has always been. Jesus did not start with the virgin birth. Jesus has always been. It's one of the wonderful things about Jesus because he didn't come in not understanding the idea of him being God. He knew what he was coming for. He knew the mission. He knew the mission from the beginning of time. He was there as God, as a trinity, a triune God was creating the earth. Jesus was there creating it by the word of God. Jesus, the word of God, as God spoke the world into existence, Jesus was creating the world. Jesus was, is, and always will be God. Always. Now, this is a, this is a big thing. This is a big statement. And, and I want to help you see that this is not just a new thing. Sometimes uh, this is especially true with, uh, with folks who have Jewish uh, lineage. People that are Jews have a real issue with this because this is what Jesus claimed to be. Now, the whole story talks about one day a Messiah will come. In fact, the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be God in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he assumed divine authority. In other words, he assumed God authority over several things. He assumed authority over the Sabbath. He assumed authority over the forgiveness of sins. He assumed authority over people's eternity. Jesus, as he was here on earth, claimed divine authority over those things. Jesus also claimed the right to receive worship. Only God alone should be worshiped according to the law, according to the Ten Commandments, and Jesus claimed that right as God. He also claimed the right to answer prayers. Only God could answer prayers, but Jesus was saying, no, I came to answer prayers. He was making sure that people understood very clearly that he is God. Not only that, but Jesus called himself the son of man. And I don't remember if you remember this from our last series, but in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel speaks about the son of man. Jesus claimed that title for himself when he came to earth. And not only that, but Jesus is also seen as God by all of the other New Testament authors who wrote. There is no shadow of a doubt that Jesus claims to be God and other people see him that way as well. Now, why is that important? Well, because the Jews believe this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The, the Jews believe this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's why they had issue with Jesus saying he was God. It's why they had issue with Jesus saying, no, I, I'll forgive your sins. They had a big issue with that because he was claiming to really be God. Sometimes we just gloss over some of these things that Jesus said. It was audacious what he was claiming. He was claiming that he was God on earth. You know, I was talking with somebody about this series, and they said, you know, what do you want people to walk away with today? And I said, I hope that they walk away understanding that Jesus truly is God. And they laughed, and they said, do people really struggle with that? And I said, yeah, they do. Because if Jesus truly is God, then his life, his obedience, his sacrifice is otherworldly. And it must change our life. 
It must change the way that we live. It must change the way that we view ourselves. And it must change the way that we view our position and place and responsibility on planet Earth. Do you believe that Jesus is fully God? You know, we talk about the C.S. Lewis quote, quote a lot, which would think that anybody who claims Jesus is just a good teacher or just a good man, you can't do that. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed that the only way to good relationship, right relationship with the Father is through him. Jesus claimed that he was Lord over the Sabbath, and that's why he could do what he wanted to do on the Sabbath. It's why Jesus claimed to heal people. It's why he claimed to forgive their sins, because he was saying, I am God. So to say that he's a good man is ludicrous. To say that he was a good teacher is ridiculous. It's crazy to claim that's where I'll go. That's my limit of where I go. And C.S. Lewis penned that you would, must believe that he is God or you must believe that he's the craziest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And you must make a decision on those things. So do you believe that he is who he says he is? Do you believe that he was born of a virgin, that he is God and thus took on all, all the divine attributes, all the divine things that God is God is also Jesus? Do you believe that? Is that a stumbling block for you? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that not only he was resurrected from the dead, but that he could resurrect other people from the dead, is that a stumbling block for you? The fact that he could claim that he could forgive people of their sins or heal any disease or sickness, is that a stumbling block for you? Do you truly embrace that Jesus is God? And what do your prayers look like? How are you facing tough situations knowing that the Spirit of Christ indwells you? Do you trust that God truly is in control and that because Jesus has came as God, that you can face anything in front of you. How does Jesus' claim to be God change the way that you see your life? Not only does it reveal the person of God, but it also reveals the plan of God. And this is the second portion of verse 6, and it just says this. Said he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, this is a, a hotly debated topic, and it's been that way for hundreds of years. What does this mean? What does this mean? Equality with God can't be grasped onto or cling to, as the NLT says. The SV uses the word grasp. So I'm going to use a very practical illustration. Everybody put your outlines down in your lap real quick. I want you to take your hands out, okay? Grasp can mean one of two things. It can mean that you're trying to reach out and grab something, okay? So I want you to reach out and grab something. Everybody, I know you're thinking, this, JC, come on, JC. You, this is going to help you, I promise, okay? You can try and don't, re, don't grab your neighbor's hair in front of you, Okay? That's bad. That's not showing them the love of Jesus, okay? So you can reach out and grab. Grasp. I'm trying to grasp something, which is what a lot of people think this is what it says. I don't think that's what it says at all. In fact, I think it's a, it's a heretical view to say that, okay? Or it means I already have something and I'm continuing to hold on to it, okay? Grasp. 
And basically, Jesus is letting go of this idea. Now, what does that mean? Because this, this is a hard thing to understand, okay? And I've, I've been studying this like crazy, okay? Once you hear you're doing a series, it's like, boom, let's go, all right? You get book. I mean, you're just reading everything you can, okay? And so I think this is so crucial for our understanding of this because Jesus wasn't trying to be God. This isn't saying Jesus was trying to grasp out to be, be God. He is God. There's not a section, there's not a piece of scripture that would claim that Jesus is not God in the entire Bible. You can't find it. It's not in there. Jesus is God according to the Bible. And so this word must be that he is not, he is choosing not to hold on to the fact that he is God. Now, that's a big statement. What does that mean? Does that mean he stopped being God? No, it doesn't mean that. Let me help you here. Let me help you here. Who's got some kids that have been off to college recently? Come on, raise your hand high. I know you're like, I'm sad. I don't want to, you know, I don't want everybody to share my sadness. Okay, I get it. I get it. Now, here's the thing. And, I, and I'm not, I don't have kids that are close to college. Thank you, Jesus. Goodness gracious. My son's six. Please give me patience, okay? But I, I want you to imagine this. When your kids are about to go away to college and you're boo-hooing like the last, I mean, like right now, it's March. If your kids are about to graduate, I mean, you've been crying every day, right? What in the world is happening? I remember them in diapers, oh my gosh, right? And they're leaving. I mean, they're leaving. You have to consciously choose as a parent to let them go. Now, some of you struggle with that and big time struggle. I mean, I, I know college students, they're going, my mom is calling me every day. Why come? I'm just trying to do my math homework. <laughs> and that's okay, mom. It's okay to love your kids. Now, let me ask you this. And y'all are going to understand this, okay? Do you stop being a parent when you let them go? Come on. Say it with confidence. This, Perry's not asking you a Bible question right here, okay? Do you stop being a parent when you let them go to college? No. which means you're consciously choosing to enter into something different as a parent. It means this is your baby. You didn't stop being a parent. In fact, you'll never stop being a parent. But what it looks like to be a parent changes. Now, I, I, I caution you in using this exercise because I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here in doing this, okay? Jesus came to earth. God came to earth. When you look at all the other world religions, the idea that God would come to his people is crazy. It should blow our minds that God desires to even be in the same realm and area with us because he is otherworldly. He is different. He is separated. He is holy. So what's he doing by not grasping onto his godness? What's he doing? He's showing us what it looks like to live as a human. See, the plan for God was for God to come to earth and experience humanity and show you what it means to depend on God as Father, a relationship that Jesus talked ad nauseum about. I am the Son, and I do only what pleases the Father. He shows you what it means to depend on the Spirit. 
And he did it for a certain reason, because here's the thing. As God, Jesus being God, there are certain things that he has rights to. He has rights to worship. You know, we'll get to the end of this this phrasing in this passage of Scripture, but it says this. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. So I want you to get a picture of what's happening here. When Jesus, who's God, comes to earth, the God that one day all of us will, all of us will bow our knees. All of us will confess him as he truly is. All of us comes to earth and is not demanding worship, even though he deserves it. God, I mean, not having people bow down every time he walks by, it should make you go, what is happening? What is happening? So I want to give you an example of what this looks like. And it starts at the beginning, right before Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, is Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Satan looks at him and says, hey, I know you're hungry. And before even Satan enters into this picture in Matthew 4, it says, hey, he's been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. Satan comes along and says, hey, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Because Satan knew that's something that God could do. Does Jesus turn the stones into bread? No. What does he say? What does he feed on? Every word of God. The word of God is his sustenance. Now here's what, here's this, and I want you to understand this. Later on, when there are hungry people in his midst, 5,000 people, and they get a little boy's happy meal, a little boy's lunch, right? And he gives thanks to the Father and then breaks it and distributes it. Do you think he just gained that power all of a sudden? To multiply bread? To make food for himself? Come on, y'all be brave. Come on, do you think he just got that power right then? No, he's always God. He never used his divine power for himself. Ever. Which meant when he was being tempted in the wilderness, who was he going to feed then? He was going to feed himself. It wasn't that Jesus lacked the power to feed himself. He only used divine power to minister to others. The plan of God is God came to earth for us. And what does that look like? What does it look like that he came for us? Well, Scripture gives us a good synopsis of this. In Mark 10, 45, it says that Jesus Christ came to serve. In Luke 19.10, it says that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. In John 10.10, it says he came to give us life, and not just life, but life overflowing, life abundant, life other than, new life, incredible life, wonderful life. Jesus came to do that for us. And he did this one. Now, I get excited talking about this. Y'all may, you know, y'all may not get excited about this, but I get excited about this. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I, I don't want you to miss this because I'm going to preach a little bit real, real quick, Okay. 
And this, this may be something you've never thought about before. The devil is not God's problem. I'm going to say it again. The devil is not God's problem. JC, what are you saying? What in the world are you saying right now? Think about this. Think about this for a second. God, when he's having the conversation about what's going to go on with Job, is, is God like, is it a struggle to be next to Satan having this conversation? Is it, is it something that God seems worried about and Satan's right next to him? Does it seem like this is a battle for the ages, that these are enemies and rivals? Or does it seem like God is in complete control of the situation? He's in control. He's in control. Jesus, who's fully God, did not even use his divine attributes to come and deal with Satan who's tempting him in the wilderness. He just stuck his, stuck his claim on the word of God. The devil is our problem as human beings. He lies to us. He accuses us. He accuses us of not following God. Doesn't mean that God's not concerned about the devil. Doesn't mean that God is not looking at the devil as this is something that's going to get dealt with. But it's not a problem for God. It's not an eternal struggle back and forth. Jesus came to finally put a stake in the works of the devil. And that one day, we're already, if we're a follower of Christ, we're saved from our past. We're saved from the power of sin, but one day we'll be removed and we will be saved from the presence of sin. Jesus Christ finished the works of the devil for eternity. We know that we have an inheritance because of Jesus Christ destroying the works of the devil. It's not a struggle back and forth. It's not good versus evil. It's God. And that's it. The plan of God. God came to earth for you. He came to earth for you. He came to earth for you. He came to earth for you. Are you living according to God's plan? Are you being tempted to live your life for yourself? See, God came to earth to invite you into a different type of life. But so often we, we get moved into a other type of life. The, the life that's here, the life of the flesh, the life of selfishness. Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God here on earth. But oftentimes we settle for life in the kingdom of earth. Not only did the incarnation of Christ reveal the person of God, not only did it reveal the plan of God, but it also revealed the promise of God. Why does it matter that Jesus is God? They see, it seems like you're just saying the same thing over and over again. Why is this so important? Well, it's important, first of all, because only God can forgive sins. I'm going to remind you of a story in Mark chapter 2. There's a paralyzed man, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven, and everybody goes, what are you, what are you talking about? Only God can forgive sins. 
And Jesus just says, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to say get up and walk? And I love the depth of teaching that's happening here that Jesus is displaying because here's what's happening in those people's minds. They're thinking to themselves, well, it'd be much easier, much easier for you to just say that his sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk. It'd be much easier for you to say. But that's not really what's harder to say. It is much harder to forgive someone's sins because only God can forgive sins. But what happens to that paralyzed man? He gets up and walks. And not only can Jesus tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk, but he can also forgive sins. We can rely and trust the promise of God because Jesus is God. If he were just a man, we could not trust what he did for us. His substitution on our behalf would not be enough if he were merely a man. But Jesus is not merely a man. Jesus is God. Romans 5.12 says this, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And this is really a, a problem with our world, our culture today. We think we can just help ourselves out of every situation. Or we can call on help, or we can start a Kickstarter, or a GoFundMe, and we can get ourselves out of all the problems we've got. And here's the thing, there's a problem that we have that we can't get ourselves out of. And no, no GoFundMe, no Kickstarter, no trending hashtag on Twitter, no whole food diet, no uh, weight loss program, no uh, internet marketing scheme, none of those things will forgive us of our sins. None of them. And yet we get wrapped up like our life will be different by these things. No earthly strategy will fix our spiritual issue. No earthly strategy will fix our spiritual issue. According to God, we are dead, we are helpless, and we are hopeless. So God sent Jesus to planet earth. Now, let me just tell you something. I want to help you understand this, and I've, we talked about this before, but I want to give you a reminder. How many dead people you know ever ask for help? One? Can you think of one? How many dead people you know, like, raise their hand up and say, hey, I need some of that? Come on, be brave. Zero's the answer. Zero dead people can lift up or ask for help. In our sins, there's nothing we can do about it because our sins are sins against an infinitely holy God. And there has to be an infinitely holy solution to fix our infinitely spiritual problem. And if we're dead and hopeless, we can't lift our hand up to ask for help. It must come from somewhere else. And it does. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies. In other words, he came across enemy lines. Jesus Christ came across enemy lines to look at us and say, I love you. 
There's nothing you can do about this, but come with me. Trust me, believe in me. I have the solution and I came to give it to you. While we were enemies, looking at God and wanting no part, Jesus came for us. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. We can trust that promise because Jesus is God. We can trust it. Because of Christ being God, we know that we can trust his life, his obedience to God, and his sacrifice on the cross for us. We know that because he was resurrected from the dead, that he meant what he said he meant. We know those things to be true. And so when we face God and we cling and we lean on and we trust nothing else other than Jesus Christ, we can trust that God's promise to us will be fulfilled because the only being that can make us right with God is God himself. And that's exactly what he did. There is no sin too great for God to forgive you because God himself was the sacrifice. If you submit to him, if you turn from your sin, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus will fulfill the promise that he made to those who love him. But it means turning away. It means turning to God. It means fully laying yourself on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. We can trust God's promise. Somebody give me an amen. amen. Come on. Stephen Wellham said it in this way. Jesus did not just come to perform signs and wonders as a greater Moses, although he did. To heal as a greater Elisha, although he did. To rule as a greater David, although he is. He is God's son who came to redeem, judge, and rule the earth. No mere human being is capable of those things. Because Jesus is God, we can trust that his obedience is acceptable to God. We can trust that his suffering is complete and fully the payment for our sins. And we can believe and trust that we will live eternally with God forever in his kingdom. But do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is truly God? Do you believe that the promises that are found in God's word are true of you because of the sacrifice of Jesus? Are you still trying to do this life on your own? You think that whatever the next get rich quick scheme is or uh, that a job change or a promotion or maybe a new house or maybe the fact that you're gonna have a life change, maybe the fact that your kids are going to college, maybe you've got some kind of hope in this. But let me just tell you, if your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, you cannot trust it. At the bottom of your outline, you're going to see something today called Brookwood's Basic Beliefs. Now, I've said this word up here before, but I want to make sure that I clarify what it is. And, and me and my son, my family, we go through this thing called catechism. And I know if you grew up Roman Catholic, you're like, you even just had a weird taste in your mouth when I said it, okay? But catechism is just this. It's a way, it's a systematic way to instruct your children on what to believe. Now, some of you are going, well, JC, I feel like if I instruct my kids what to believe, then I'm going to mess it all up. My kids just need to pursue Jesus on their own. No. I'm going to say it again. No. You can't look through Scripture and see a family's influence in the life of faith 
That's what it is. That's what we do. In fact, God told us that in Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. He said, this is what you teach your children. You teach them these things. And he said, you do it so holistically, they get annoyed by it, basically. You write it on the doorpost, you talk about it at the table, you put it on their, I mean, you put it everywhere. Now, these are designed for kids. But how many of you know the answer to these questions? How many of you have memorized the answer to this question below? So I wanna first let you know, it's okay, it's okay. Second of all, I hope that you can get over the fact that of catechism and it being a Roman Catholic practice and commit to teaching your child these things. And we're gonna give you some of these so, every so often, okay? But this is a Brookwood basic belief. And the question is just this, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? The answer is this, so that his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. So I'm gonna tell you, JC, well, that's great, but how do I use this with my kid? You just say this, hey kid, <laughs> say this after I say this. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? Why must the Redeemer be true? So that his obedience and suffering would be perfect. So that his obedience, that's literally it. Do that all this week. And here's what happens, because this is what happens with my son. Sometimes you'll be going through life and something happens and you'll be going, man, that sounds tough. That sounded tough. And he goes, you know what? But Jesus is God, so it's okay. I am thankful that we are developing, creating resources to help you as mom and dad equip your kids in what to believe. But my hope is you start with you. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? So that his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, lacking nothing, and it works. Now, if you're in here today, and this is one of your things, this is a stumbling block, this is an obstacle for you, or you're dealing with a situation where maybe you're not trusting that Jesus really is God, we're going to have the care volunteers down front. Just come pray. Just come pray. Have somebody join with you in prayer. And if you say to yourself, I have been trying to live my life my own way and I need to submit to God and turn from my sin, then I'll invite you to come down as well. Let's pray. Oh, God. God, you came to earth for us. We have sinned against you. Heal us. Heal our influence in the community. Heal our influence in the world. And God, I pray that you would equip us, anoint us with your spirit to influence the world for Christ. And God, I pray, I pray if there's someone in here today that doesn't know the wonderful new relationship that you've given us through your son Jesus, God, I pray that you would wreck them this week and that you would show them there is no other way, there is no other name that we can be saved other than Christ Jesus. Thank you, thank you, God for coming for sinners who are dead and helpless and hopeless and giving us 
a hope through your son, Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we're able to pray these things. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways that you can connect with other Christians, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326. You can also find our past messages on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.